Hello, hello. I am your host, Dorotia Barna, and you are listening to the Mind Society Speaker Series, where we invite professors, researchers, and graduate students specializing in psychology to share and discuss their unique research questions, most recent studies, along with their fascinating findings. Coming from some of the top universities throughout the world, these experts will share what they've been working on in their labs and illuminate their discoveries so that we can use this information as sources of knowledge to elevate the quality of our lives and the way we engage with and interpret others. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of the Mind Society Speaker Series. Our guest today is someone who sets themselves apart from our usual cohort of experts. As a faculty member at Cornell, Dr. Shimon Edelman studies and writes about computational psychology, sociology, language, theoretical neuroscience, artificial intelligence, along with ethics and consciousness. What is computational psychology, you ask? Essentially, it observes cognition as a fundamentally computational process. This idea can be applied in different areas such as perception, memory, motor control, language, reasoning, and more. Dr. Edelman spends his time generating theories that might help explain how our brains use computational mechanisms to engage in certain psychological phenomena. We discuss these topics along with the concept of consciousness specifically during my conversation with Dr. Edelman up next. today. I I really look forward to the conversation that we're going to have. It's a little bit different than typical general psychology, so it would be considered more cognitive science. Would you agree? Uh, Yeah, thank you. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Yes, definitely this will not be, I do not expect it to be any regular kind of psychology, because for one thing, I'm not a psychologist by training. In fact, they let me here at Cornell teach psychology without having taken a single course in it ever in my life. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. So I, I did a bit of research as far as what you've been working on. I, I listened to your, your TED talk and it, that was fascinating, by the way. Thank you. And, and one thing maybe I kind of wanted to use as a jumping off point is the quote that you have is the essence of you is computation. So it's a really broad, ambiguous statement. And I kind of wanted to see if you could just take us as far as what that means and use it to describe what you've been working on just in these past few years and maybe go into the different studies that you conducted and then eventually go into your findings. But let's first kind of unpack what that statement means. Yeah, it's funny that you see it as ambiguous because I think it's the most concrete, probably too concrete for my own good (laughs) statement of uh, how things are with regard to the relationship between the brain and the mind. You know, brains compute minds, that's it. Uh, Other platforms can compute minds as well. And the the essence of a mind is uh, the bundle of computations Mm -hmm. that uh, constitute it. And uh, that is meant literally in an extremely broad sense. In in fact, as broad a sense as you can conceive. And I have a standing bet to the course, uh, my service course at Cornell is called Computational Psychology. And uh, it's kind of mid-size, mid-enrollment course. And I always offer a bet to all the students that any aspect of the mind 
mind that they care to come up with, uh, I would be able to state in computational terms, maybe not explain exactly how it works. Of course, not yet, but definitely a, a computational statement is possible. And that includes everything. And people usually, the feathers that get ruffled, they usually are located in the vicinity of topics such as love and feelings and, and all of that. And But that that is included. So when it comes to computational psychology, what exactly is it that makes up computational psychology? Yeah, this this would be a trivial statement and a non-explanation as such because uh, everything in the universe is computational in the sense that the universe at all times computes its next state. The universe meaning really all of it. And that's basically physics. And what we know is the laws of physics are just the distillations of the, the patterns that we observe in those computations. Uh, the, the most accessible way of putting it that I've found throughout, throughout the years teaching this stuff to undergraduates, sometimes to high school kids, is uh, imagine throwing a piece of chalk or just letting go of a piece of chalk and that would begin to accelerate towards the center of the planet. Actually, the Earth would also be accelerating towards the piece of chalk as we know from physics. And how would they know how fast to go if they were not computing uh, their, their physical parameters, the velocity and the, and the position? But that would be, with regard to the mind, that would be a non-explanation, because if everything is computation, how are minds different? And uh, that points to the second critical component, which is representation, conceptual component, the concept of representation. So minds are built around representations of the rest of the world, sometimes also of themselves. And it's those representations that are being computed. So minds are not just computations in general, as uh, dropped objects would be implementing, but rather computations of representations, which are maintained by virtue of the pressure. If it's a live system, then uh, evolution is in the play and there's a pressure for the representations to be useful. And if it's an engineered system, of course, there's pressure from the designers of the system. Uh, but that should clarify things. Uh, you know, let me know, does it clarify things, this concept of representation? Yeah. Yeah, maybe go into, a, like, um, unpack that concept a little bit more. Yeah, you know, if you consider what the world looks like from the vantage point of your brain, it's completely dark because your brain is inside the skull and uh, you really hope that there are no holes in it so no light shines onto the brain and th there is a need which has been realized by philosophers you can find it in, in sources that are 300 years old and, and older it has been realized that the brain needs to get information into the skull uh, so that it can guide the behavior appropriately and so quantities such as um, even just the amount of light in the vicinity, you know, I enter into a room, do I need to throw the switch on? Uh, that information needs to be represented internally for the current state to be acted on and for the next state, the desired state to be computed. And uh, this is just getting information inside, which is a bit like, think of a war room where the generals are. You know, generals are usually not where the fighting happens. The generals are far away from the fighting, and so the brain is far away from the action, relatively speaking. But the intelligence needs to be streamed in. And so that, that's just the basics, but uh, there are some non-trivial computations going on. Because, for instance, if you look at the surface that uh, has some light shining onto it, you need to separate the amount of light that falls onto it, which depends on the intensity of the source, the lamp, 
from the reflectance of the surface because you may want to know is the surface dark or light like is it a piece of paper in front of me or a blackboard and uh, the computational problem in this case is uh, consists in the fact that the amount of light that's thrown onto the surface that number gets multiplied by the reflectance of the surface and what gets to the eye is the product so the brain needs to pry this product apart into the two quantities which which went into it that's a problem in in arithmetic there's no avoiding it it sounds like an impossible problem because there are two unknowns and one known but that's a separate talk i mean i i, I would gladly spend the next hour describing how brains actually do it but what there is no doubt about is that first the computation is involved and second it's a non-trivial computation things need to be you know numbers need to be juggled quantities need to be estimated and so on and that's just one example from perception the same applies to action and thinking and all of that that's actually really interesting you also mentioned that feelings are computations so when you were explaining that as far as the general has to be away from action, so the brain has to be away from the action, and, and you're kind of referring to the eyes as being the, the warriors, the soldiers. They're the ones that are, are taking in these, these stimuli um, and then communicating that to the brain. But what about the different senses, you know, taste and, and smell and touch and feeling, maybe the air pressure or like the, the temperature around you? And so what about those computations and then perhaps the feelings that arise from those computations? What do you think about that? So feelings are uh, the result of agents, systems that are em embedded in the world having to care about outcomes. If a system doesn't care about outcomes, uh, evolution has no power over it, uh, which means the system can do what it wants, but it will be thrown out of the pool and as the saying goes and and so caring is obviously what we experience as feelings this is one aspect of feeling and uh, for us for creatures like ourselves every sensory moment comes laden with with feelings we never just see we see and and evaluate what we see we hear and we taste we touch we at all times evaluate that and uh, this concept of value which of course is computational, you know, value is a number we put on states and on successor states. We experience that because uh, had we not been experiencing it, we would not care about it. And, and so we would not have evolved to be what we are. In fact, this comes very close to the topic of my most recently published paper, which is about pain, uh, the conscious feeling of pain. Why feel pain? Why not just be guided by outcomes and take them into account without having a care in the world about those outcomes? You know, think of a self-driving car, which can be taught, in fact, is taught and then teaches itself to avoid, say, lampposts or pedestrians. And definitely that can be done without feeling. We can pretty confidently say that Teslas don't feel. Unlike Tesla drivers, even when they are not steering the car at a particular time. But we are not like that. We are not like self-driving cars. And the question arises, why? So there's an evolutionary component to this. And there is a computational component. And it, it's highly non-trivial. I would not be able to explain it in, in the time we have. But it basically has to do with competition uh, between internal competition in our brains between or, or among the different actors, each of which 
is um, championing a particular course of action in any given situation. Like if I'm driving towards a lamppost, should I stay on course? Should I swerve to the right or swerve to the left? And the pain has to do, this is the short of it, pain, the experienced pain has to do with uh, the confidence that each actor propounding or proposing its course of action has in that course of action. And that's kind of a commitment uh, agents that uh, champion particular course of action bid on access to control. And uh, the amount of the bidding is what we experience as pain. And uh, this is in place, this is put in place by evolution as a control mechanism to ensure that uh, agents do not just uh, gratuitously propose particular course of action, even if they are incapable of executing them or unsure of outcomes. Only those that are really sure of the outcome and put the money where their mouth is, so to speak, those are given access. And that is is translated, or the system in its entirety experiences that as, as pain. I realize this sounds very abstract, but uh, there are some very interesting evolutionary principles here, which are actually easy to explain. So if we, if you allot me yeah, a couple more minutes for, for explaining that, um, I can try to do that. So the evolutionary principle here is uh, is called uh, the, the handicap principle. This is the same process that is at work uh, that has driven peacocks to the male peacocks to develop those huge tails. You know the big the big uh, shiny display that a, a peacock uh, presents is a hard to fake measure of its fitness. It's hard to fake because you literally as a peacock you have to build that structure. You have to defend yourself, you become cumbersome in your perambulations and you have to work hard, basically all to convince the female that you are highly worthy of her attention. So the handicap is is the big tail. It's like here, I, I'm handicapped by the tail, but nevertheless, I can jump high and run fast and maybe fly. So this is essentially about honesty and uh, to ensure honesty in any kind of situation where competition is being played out or where um, adversarial agents are in, co- in communication with each other, uh, this principle applies. It, it's a very general one in, in evolutionary science, identified by a zoologist, Amot Zahavi, 30 years ago. And it applies here to pain because, because in a nutshell, then, if, if you get this principle, you can see how pain could be the cost that the system pays for or as, as a guarantee of its honesty of the, of the agent that proposes a particular course of action. So if I'm uh, out, I'm reaching to grasp some blackberries in a thorny bush and the the berries are inside the bush and I have to impale myself to some extent on the thorns to get to the berries, the pain that I'm willing to suffer is in proportion to my commitment to get to the berries. I have a definite plan to reach the berries. I'm willing to suffer the pain. In fact, I have to suffer the pain to convince myself in this case because I'm, I'm a multitude of agents, right? to convince myself that this course of action, pushing through and getting to the berries, you know, per aspera ad astra, is is worthy. So that's kind of bringing together a very general evolutionary principle with some very definite computational architecture. I haven't described yet what the architecture behind this bunch of agents is like, but it's actually a lot like the computational architecture in a self-driving car, surprisingly so. Uh, the the theoretical framework is called reinforcement learning, which is also a borrow from 
behavioral theories from from 30 or 50 years ago. So as far as the, the studies you did or the study that you did on pain, can you go into maybe the method and then what you found as far as the, the results? So I'm, I'm a, I guess I'm a theoretical cognitive scientist at this point um, because uh, I'm increasingly drawn to questions which uh, are probably too big even for the biggest labs. And in fact, what happens typically in the lab is a, a big question gets translated into sizable or manageable chunks and then gets explored empirically. But uh, for that to happen effectively, someone has to do the work uh, of, um, for one thing, bridging disciplines, like what I just described or outlined in, in a way of bringing zoology and evolutionary ecology together with computational cognitive science. And so that's what I do. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm very lucky and I, I, I feel very privileged in having the freedom to do so. This is what tenure uh, at a, a research university allows you to do. And, and, and so that, that's what I do. And luckily, I'm also independent because of that, uh, of, of the need to constantly write grant proposals to keep my lab going, because uh, all I need is some graduate students who are willing to tackle the big issues. Uh, we try to think of the implications and uh, generate predictions, and the rest is the usual science, as, as you know. In fact, I, I am involved in, in some ongoing empirical research, but comes in my mind secondary to this uh, exploration, which is largely theoretical. So we've been sitting on a, on a pile of EEG data that pertains to the interaction of attention and expectation in consciousness. So consciousness is my, my current main interest or one of maybe two main interests. And we have been doing some empirical work there, but again, it's uh, primarily or what, what primarily interests me is the theoretical stuff. Bringing together uh, the handicap principle and the multi-agent, multi-criterion reinforcement learning is, is definitely not something that a, a lab bench or an oscilloscope or a, you know, or a microscope for. I wanted to discuss, because this is a topic that came up in previous conversations as well, and I'm, I, I was born in Hungary. I grew up in the States, and uh, I lived in Norway for a bit, and I'm in Boston now. So it's interesting throughout my entire life to kind of experience the way different cultures experience reality. And this is a really interesting question that I wanted to get your take on. I know that you're from originally Moldova. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Um, you're in the small minority of people in the world who even know about that small country. <laughs> yes. Correct. Perhaps. So I wanted to kind of get your take as far as how does culture play the different cultures play a role in those individuals' different representations. So how does culture play a role in everyone's unique representation of reality and then in turn affecting their consciousness? Yeah, wow. Uh, culture is understood by, by myself and people with whom I work very broadly. So I, I've been... I've been guilty of associating with zoologists, you know, and I actually already mentioned the famous one uh, who was the, the thesis advisor of, of um, Arnon Lottem, my good friend from the Tel Aviv University, who is at the Department of Zoology. So people like Arnon and myself, we believe that culture applies to all animals, pretty much all species have some aspect of culture. So think of culture as uh, patterns of behavior or processes that underlie patterns of behavior that are uh, 
acquired in some way, maybe external, maybe transmitted via the external environment, as opposed to being, you know, built into the genome. Very little is built into the genome, which I think this this view of culture really puts things into perspective. Speaking of culture, right? So this is a particular variety of scientific culture, people who are ecumenical in their outlook of this concept. So uh, that means that a bacterium or a slime cell in a slime mold that somehow interacts with other cells in its vicinity and has particular patterns of interactions coming out from its experience, it has in some sense culture. Of course, very much simplified and and not anywhere like the culture that you meant in, in your question. But this is all just to say that I'm extremely open to the notion that our representations are viewed through the lens of culture. That That's for starters. And of course, then we have, on top of that, there are constraints. So because, because culture is probably almost by definition a collective phenomenon, right? It's never about a single individual, a single agent. Uh, the collective action and the interaction means that to some extent, I don't want to say uniformity, but coordination is imposed on those internal representations. So it would not do for us to have uh, views, like literally interpretations of the world that are so disparate that interaction with other others like us uh, is impaired. Uh, but having said that, of course, there's a lot of room for, uh, for differences in perception. In fact, there is a, a great metaphor in psychology which applies here. This is due, I think, to Egon Brunswick from the 1950s, the concept of triangulation. So in general, cognitive systems get to know their world. They build representations by, in some sense, triangulating the information they have. For instance, when you match what you see with what you feel through your sense of touch and what you hear, it's like having different angles. Of course, we are so visual that our language is imbued with this notion of viewpoint, right? But viewpoints apply to other senses as well. And the moment you have different senses working collaboratively, you're triangulating the object of interest. And and now think of several different agents confronted with the same situation, presumably co-located in the physical world, there would be coordination. And, And so disparate Cultures now understood in terms of um, patterns of behavior and maybe entrenched patterns of behavior, they would not be completely incommensurable. They would, in fact, be coordinated to some extent. Now, when when the collocation does not happen or happens after a while following initial separation, then you have you have a clash, and 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 so we perceive social situations using the very same senses that we perceive physical situations. In fact, there shouldn't be even a division, which means that when culture, again, in the sense that was implied in your question, comes into play, there would be differences, right? But there would also be commonalities. I don't want to make those empty statements to the effect that, you know, there are human universals and we are all human. That goes without saying. We are human, we are all human. But we can be pretty different. And and yet those differences are, are not unbridgeable. And speaking of one's experience in traveling the world, I think the of course, I'm not the only one thinking this, the best antidote to parochialism and cultural stubbornness is exposure to other people and other cultures. And again, the language we use for that, all of a sudden, after some conversation, I saw 
her viewpoint or I perceived his viewpoint. We use metaphorical language to describe something that happens at all levels, at multiple levels. That applies from the very basic perception to the, again, the perception of social situations without which we cannot very well survive because we are a social species and uh, all this pretending that rugged individualism will get us very far. It will only get us to individually to perdition. Just to kind of wrap this up beautifully and put a bow on it, where do you see your research, your theoretical research going? Kind of briefly go over that and what you hope to support or answer in the future. Well, I haven't gotten to mentioning the big problem that I'm working on, and this is uh, by many accounts the biggest problem in cognitive science, the so-called hard problem of consciousness, which is reconciling the physical nature of the brain with the seemingly non-physical or kind of weird nature of the mind and especially of the phenomenal states of the phenomenal consciousness, the so-called qualia, the, the qualitative feelings or feels that we experience. How could that be physical? That is seen by many to be the hardest question in cognitive science and by the person who coined the expression, the hard problem, Dave Chalmers, it is seen as an insurmountable problem. So Chalmers thinks that we we will never be able to adequately explain or bridge this gap between the physical and the mental. Of course, this is the the old mind-body problem uh, having been given a new name. So I don't think there is an insurmountable gap. So the theory that I've been developing with my colleagues, which I haven't mentioned uh, here um, uh, purports to bridge to, to have have having bridged the gap, and uh, I guess my project in the next following years is to convince more people that this is so. <laughs> you know, it's nice to have people agreeing with you, but by temperament, I'm very used to disagreeing with with others, and you know, I'm, I'm perfectly fine to keep uh, disagreeing with others. Although it would be awfully nice for people to realize that there is no aspect of the mind that is mysterious and will forever remain. So there's no mystery there. That's fascinating. And it's very inspiring. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on today and telling us about your work and giving us your insight and feedback. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dorothy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Shimon Edelman. Tune in a couple weeks from now for our final guest, veteran psychology professor and researcher, Dr. Richard McNally. He's been the director of clinical training at Harvard for many years and will provide insight into the world of anxiety. If these types of conversations interest you, hit subscribe below. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay curious.